So 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 16 to 46. Uh, sorry, pages on 254 of the that-sized thickness Bible. <laughs> okay, from verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said, surely he is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought, or busy, or travelling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. 
Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O oh Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O oh Lord, answer me so these people will know that you, O oh Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God! The Lord, he is God! Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal, don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. There's nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose, a heavy rain came on and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. All right, well, let's just bow in prayer, shall we? Father, we pray that as we come to consider your word now, that uh, you would give us uh, a real uh, clear and fresh understanding of the passage that's before us. We pray also that through your spirit that we would uh, be thinking through how the great truths of the passage apply in our lives and that we would make the necessary changes. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's the gain that needs to be turned down, guys. Well, life is uh, full of decisions, isn't it? There's all sorts of different categories of decisions that we make in life. Uh, many decisions which we make, most decisions which we make are trivial decisions that uh, have no real consequences on our lives. Um, some of those, you might have made the decision today to uh, eat breakfast. And uh, that decision is a trivial decision, whether you go for cornflakes or wheat bix doesn't really matter, does it? It may, to some people, it might be an important decision, but uh, if you can't decide on what to eat for breakfast, then you can always mix the two, uh, because it doesn't really matter. 
There are other decisions in life uh, which are more like what I'd describe as T-intersection type of decisions, uh, where you come to a point where a decision about something must be made, uh, it needs to, needs to be a clear decision one way or the other, and the effect of that decision uh, has an impact on where you end up, uh, your destination, uh, in terms of that particular issue. Well, what about the decision about God? Uh, what about the decision about who is God and what we will do about God? That is an important decision. That's one of those T-intersection types of decisions. Some people don't treat it that way, though. Some people treat the decision about God as if it's a trivial decision. Uh, they say that, now I'm hearing lots of ringing. Are you guys hearing a lot of ringing? It's not working for us today. Technology. Can you pump that up for us, guys? How's that? Can everyone hear now? Okay. We'll get it right eventually. We had the sound engineer in on uh, the other day and he fixed it up and it was beautiful when he was here. Now, uh, the, the, um, the decision about uh, God is a decision that some people take as being trivial. Uh, they will say, oh yeah, I believe in God. I mean, it's no big deal. Or they might say, no, nah, I don't believe in God. I mean, it doesn't really matter. There are other people who take the decision about God very, very, very seriously and they decide not to believe in God. Over the last couple of weeks, we've had the uh, Global Convention of Atheists in Melbourne, uh, the largest atheist gathering that's ever taken place in Australia. And that was a gathering of people who take the decision about God very seriously and their decision is that there is no God. Then there are people who say that it doesn't really matter what God you believe in, so long as you're sincere. Uh, you can believe in the God of Islam or the God of uh, the Bhagavad Gita, the Hindu gods, or you can believe in the God of the Bible. It doesn't really matter, so long as you're sincere about that. Now, this morning, we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Kings chapter 17 uh, and chapter 18. And uh, what we're going to see here is that Israel came to a T-intersection point where they needed to make a decision, a clear decision, about God. A T-intersection type of decision. Uh, if you were here last week, you'll remember that uh, in the chapters leading up to this, we saw that the great kingdom of Israel had split in two. Uh, there was now a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. Well, from here on in with uh, 1 Kings, the focus is on the northern kingdom of Israel. And uh, uh, you'll remember that their first king was King Jeroboam. Now, if you care to open up your Bibles at 1 Kings, uh, particularly uh, if you go to chapters 17 and 18. In the chapters leading up to this, between the split 
and where we're at today, in chapters 15 and 16, there was a succession of kings in the northern kingdom. Um, there was uh, a king Nab Nadab who came after Jeroboam. Then there was King Basha. Then there was King Elah, King Zimri, and then King Omri. Now, these guys are not important. You don't have to remember their names uh, because there's, there's not much said about them except there's one thing which is said about all of them and that is that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, that's what they're known for. In chapter 16, verse 29, we're introduced to King Omri's son, Ahab. And then the rest of 1 Kings is all about uh, Israel during the time of King Ahab's rule. So it takes us right to the end of 1 Kings. And there is a, a very tidy little summary of Ahab's life, which we see in chapter 16, verse 30. I wonder if you'll have a look at that with me. Uh, it says, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Now, how would you like it if that was the description of your life? Um, how would it be to have that uh, you know, written up about you? Well, that was written up about Ahab, that he did more evil than any of the other kings before him. What did this man do that was so evil that uh, you know, he won the title for being Israel's most evil king? Well, one of the big things that he did was he got married. Uh, I should clarify that. He got married to a particular woman and, uh, and her name was Jezebel. Now, from a political perspective, marrying Jezebel was, would have been considered to be a smart move um, because her dad was a king. He was the king of Sidon. Sidon is, I think it's in modern-day Lebanon. And he was a powerful king. And so to be married to the daughter of the king of Sidon was a good political uh, move. It gave him an allegiance with the king of Sidon. Now, notice uh, what the king of Sidon's name was. You see it in verse 31. His name was Ethbaal. Uh, that, that's a, um, an Aramaic name, and it means with Baal. Uh, Jezebel's name uh, means where is Baal in the Aramaic language. Although, uh, interestingly, her name sounded like a Hebrew word, the word Zabel, which means manure. Now, that was a little, um, a little fact that uh, some Israelite people would have very much enjoyed, I'm sure. Her name meant manure. Well, Jezebel, like her dad, was a worshipper of the god Baal. Now, uh, in the ancient world, if a princess uh, was, married, uh, married, uh, was, was married by a king of another nation, then that king, according to international protocol, would be, it would be expected that he would build a temple or a shrine in his kingdom 
so that his new queen would be able to worship her god. That was the protocol. And that is what Ahab did. Although, if you have a look at verse 31, not only did Ahab build a temple for Baal so that Jezebel could worship uh, Baal, but we're told that he also became a Baal worshipper himself. So he is the man who introduces Baal worship to Israel. Now, let me say a little bit about Baal worship, um, because you know it's not something that happens these days. Uh, it is an ancient religion. Uh, it is was believed that Baal, the god Baal, was uh, in charge of the the elements. He was in charge of the weather, the the the, the sunshine and the and the rain and and therefore the fertility of the, of the of the land. And so, uh, if you wanted your land to be fertile, if you wanted the crops to grow, then what you had to do is you had to go and have a word with Baal about that. You had to worship Baal. One of the ways that Baal could be worshipped by men was that uh, a man would go to Baal's temple where there would be women uh, employed at the temple to have sex with the worshipper. And so the idea was that that sort of um, you know, act activity at the human fleshly level uh, was a catalyst for some activity at the heavenly level and that created fertility uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the soil, in the ground, through the rain and the sun and all of that sort of thing. Um, it wasn't long before Baal worship became the most, uh, I guess you'd say it was the fastest growing religion uh, in Israel. It became very popular and you can see why that was the case. It, it really appeals to human sinfulness and it's this idea that, you know, if you worship this God, then you're going to be prosperous. It's a little bit like some people these days who think that worshipping God is a key to being prosperous. And Jezebel had her impact as well. We're uh, told in chapter 18, verse 4, that she, in fact, uh, wanted to uh, sort of finalise an entire takeover bit of Israel and for all Israelites to be Baal worshippers and to wipe out the worship of the true God. She attempted to do that by having all of the prophets of God executed. Uh, there are other people in Israel who were not as quite, quite as hardline as what she was. Uh, they thought that they could worship both God and Baal at the same time. But they can't both be God, can they? I mean, either the God of the Bible is God or Baal is God or neither of them are God, but they can't both be God at the same time. It's one or the other. And so Israel needed to make their choice. And for that reason, God sent a prophet. He sent a prophet named Elijah. Now, how would God challenge Israel to make their decision? In chapters 17 and 18, uh, God challenged Baal worshippers in two ways. Uh, the first challenge is in chapter 17. Uh, because if, God, if Baal controlled the weather, the sun and the rain and so on, then surely he could make it rain if there was a drought. 
that shouldn't be beyond him, should it? You know, a drought shouldn't be a problem. If you go and just ask Baal to send the rain, the drought will be over. So in chapter 17, verse 1, Elijah paid a visit to King Ahab and he announced that God would cause a drought for three years and that that drought would only stop when he said so. Not when Baal said so, but when God through Elijah said so. And that's what happened. Uh, it stopped raining and the drought was quite devastating. Uh, droughts are devastating when they happen in Australia, but when you live over here on the coast and you're not a farmer, uh, the big impact of a drought is you just pay higher prices at the grocery shop, don't you? Right? Well, in Israel and in any agrarian, you know, less developed agrarian society today, a drought means devastation. It means, uh, it means starvation for people. And that was certainly the case here. So one of the issues, of course, is what would happen to Elijah during this period of drought? Well, God took care of Elijah, and we see it in two important ways. First of all, in chapter 17, verses 1 to 6, uh, we're told that God sent Elijah to a place called the Kerith Ravine because there was water there. There was a brook that had water in it. And God caused birds to come and deliver food to Elijah twice a day, miraculously so. It reminds you of uh, the way God provided bread in the desert when the Israelites uh, escaped from Egypt, or it reminds you of how Jesus provided uh, bread and fish from just a few loaves and a couple of fish for thousands of people. These miracles would have strengthened Elijah's uh, understanding of the fact that God is the provider. Now, secondly, in chapter 17, verse 7 and onwards, when the water dried up, God told Elijah to go somewhere else. Check out where he sent him. In chapter 17, verse 9, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. Now, who else do we know from Sidon? Jezebel. This is Jezebel's home turf. Uh, this is Gentile territory. This is not in Israel. Uh, this is in a pagan nation. This is, a, this is a, a pagan lady. Because there, Elijah meets a lady, a widow, and her son. And they're in drought too. They're doing it tough. Uh, in verse 12, we're told that this widow only had a handful of flour left and a little bit of oil. And she expected that she was going to bake her some bread with that. Her and her son would eat it and that would be the end of their food. But God promised her through Elijah that he would keep on filling up those jars of flour and oil. And God... Uh, asked her to bake some bread and feed it to Elijah. Now that's tough, isn't it? That that's a real test of faith, isn't it? There's your last bit of flour and oil and you're asked to give it to someone else. But the lady believed God and God fulfilled that promise. Then secondly, in, chapters, in verses 17 to 24, uh, her son became very, very unwell. And... Uh, yeah, he um, 
yeah, he was very, very unwell. And we're told that Elijah, God through Elijah, raised him up. And have a look at this lady's response to these two miracles. In verse 24, verse 24, we're told that she said, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Now remember this lady is a Gentile. She's from Sidon. And she comes to believe that the words that come from Elijah's mouth are the truth from God. Now, you'd expect that the people of Israel would have an even greater faith than that, wouldn't you? But what happened? What happened when Elijah went back to Ahab after Ahab has experienced three years of drought in his land? Uh, Had he learnt the lesson? Would he believe that the words coming from the prophet were indeed the word of the, word of the Lord? When uh, in chapter 18, verse 17, Elijah went to meet up with Ahab. And how did Ahab respond? Did Ahab fall down on his knees? Did he confess his sin? Did he repudiate his idolatry? Did he say that he wanted to turn back? No, not at all. Have a look at what he does. In verse 17... In verse 17, um, rather not in verse 17, where are we? Uh, he actually, in verse 18, uh, he, he blames Elijah. Uh, he, he, um, where are we here? 18 verse 16. Yes, okay, 18 verse 16 uh, and 17 and 18. In verse 17... Uh, Ahab says to Elijah, uh, is that you, you troubler of Israel? You see what he's, he's doing there? He's, he's not accepting any responsibility whatsoever. In fact, he is blaming Elijah. After three years of drought, and these guys would have been praying and praying and praying to Baal to bring the water, uh, and after all of that, He's still not willing to accept that Baal is not God. He's a proud and stubborn man. And so God, through Elijah, presents his second challenge to Israel. We see it in in verses 18 to 24. Let me read those for you. Verse 19. Well, verse 18, I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. That's another goddess that uh, was introduced um, via Jezebel, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. 
Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set on fire. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call in the name of your God and I will call in the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people said, we agree. Sounds like a good idea. Uh, Elijah's very fair to them. He allows them to choose the bull. He allows them to go first. He allows them to spend as much time as they want praying to their God. And so the prophets of Baal went first. They prepared their sacrifice. They prayed and they danced around it um, quite um, frantically all morning for Baal to send the fire, but nothing happened. In fact, Elijah poked fun at them. Uh, You see that in verse 27, um, where he says, uh, At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or travelling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. Uh, The translators of the NIV are very, very polite. In fact, I think they're too polite um, because the word that they've translated there is busy, you know, where it says maybe he's busy, means that um, maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's gone to the toilet. That's what Elijah actually said to them. It's very earthy kind of stuff. And then Elijah had his go, but he made it harder. He saturated his bull with water until it was overflowing. He did so three times, so that just you know, if it's going to, this thing's going to go up in flames. It's an incredible miracle. And then he prayed these words in verse 36. He said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And at that Uh, God sent a fire that was so powerful that it burnt up not only the bull, but also the stones and the soil uh, of the altar. You see, the point was clear. Israel had reached this T-intersection type of decision. Uh, It was a decision about God. And it was a decision that's actually enshrined in Elijah's name. Because the name Elijah in Hebrew, it's a fusion of two words, El, which is the Hebrew word for God, and Yah, which is the uh, first syllable of the name of God, Yahweh. So he is Elijah, or Elijah, which means the Lord is God. That's his name. Uh, That's not only his name, that was his message, that the Lord is God. And so Israel had to make a decision. Who really is God? Would they follow the Lord? Now, today, people need to make the same decision about Jesus. I wonder if you'll come with me just briefly to Matthew's Gospel, to Matthew chapter 11. Because uh, in Matthew 11, Elijah is mentioned again. 
in Matthew 11, Jesus is having a discussion with his uh, with um, some disciples about John the Baptist. And uh, listen to how he describes John the Baptist in verses 13 and 14 of Matthew 11. He says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. Uh, the prophet Malachi had said that before the great day of God's visitation to earth, that Elijah would come again, preparing the way for the Lord. When Elijah came, he challenged people to make their decision about God and to turn back to him. John the Baptist came with the same uh, authority and the same boldness as Elijah did. But there is a difference between the two. Uh, you know, some people today say, I would believe in God if God would simply perform a, an incredible miracle uh, for me. You know, like fire coming down from heaven and burning the sacrifice. But the second Elijah, John the Baptist, he came in advance of a much greater miracle than the sending of fire down from heaven to burn a sacrifice. He came in advance of a miracle which is God himself coming down from heaven to be a sacrifice in the person and the work of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if you want to know if God exists, if you want to know who the true God is, then what you need to do is to look to Jesus, to look to his life, his teaching, uh, his control and authority over uh, the wind and the, and the waves, over people. And you need to look at his death and his resurrection. Because the resurrection of Jesus from the dead uh, means that we must take very seriously what Jesus claimed about himself. And what he claimed about himself was that he is God come in the flesh. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be exclusively God. Now, I recently heard that the Baha'i faith are... Um, making a bid to start teaching scripture classes in the schools in Port Macquarie, in our primary schools. I don't know, do you know much about, anyone know about the Baha'i faith? Uh, you may not know about them, but they're here, they're in Port Macquarie and they want to teach our children in the schools. Uh, they, their belief's quite interesting because they believe that uh, all of the major religions of the world come from the same God that they are just different revelations of the same God. So uh, they believe that um, you can worship the Hindu gods or you can worship Allah, the God of Islam, or you can worship Jesus, the God of the Bible, or you can worship other gods. And you do not need to make a decision. You do not need to choose one or the other. Um, in fact, 
you can believe that the god of the bible and the god of the koran and the gods of the bhagavad gita are actually um or you know you, you can believe in all of those gods simultaneously at the same time you can believe in many 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 gods and it's all okay because there's no real difference they all come they all just different expressions of the same god have you heard of that before it's coming to a school near you <laughs> now that may actually be an issue for some of us um, not that we may necessarily have a Baha'i living next door to us or that we want to go and join them and teaching you know in the schools but um, we may be people who don't want to be thought of as being narrow-minded um, you see it is very narrow-minded when you say that your God is the true God and the only God uh, and it may be that we're reluctant to say that Jesus is the way the truth and the life it may be that we're reluctant to say that uh, nobody comes to the Father except through Jesus. But when it comes to this particular truth, the truth about who God is, then we must be narrow-minded. It is right to be narrow-minded. To be narrow-minded is the only way when you're right. Now, my guess is that most of us are not tempted to go and join up with the Baha'is. But there is a bigger temptation which we all face. Uh, whether we are not yet a Christian, or whether we are a new Christian, or whether you are a person who's been a Christian for a long time, uh, our problem is that we are tempted to, uh, to not make a clear daily decision to follow God. In fact, uh, to follow God as opposed to following certain other gods. And the certain other gods I'm talking about are those things in life that take a higher priority for us than the God of the Bible. Um, for example, money. Uh, Jesus says you cannot follow both God and money. You've got to make a decision one way or the other. Uh, money elsewhere in the scriptures is referred to the, the love of money is referred to as idolatry uh, or it might be pleasure or it might be sport or it might be relationships or it might be education these are all good things but when we love them and pursue them uh, at the expense of obeying God at the expense of putting God first, then they become our God. They are our God. Elijah called on Israel to be narrow-minded and to make their decision. Uh, in chapter 18, verse 21, as the, as the huge crowd was gathered uh, on top of Mount Carmel, Elijah turned to the people and he asked them this direct question. He said to them, how long will you waver between two opinions? How long will you waver between two opinions? Now apparently a more sort of literal translation of that would be, how long will you dance from one leg to the other leg? 
And I kind of like that picture language of that person who's... Because it describes a person who is, who is unstable or who is half-hearted or who is not yet really made a clear commitment uh, or they're not totally committed to what they say that they believe. And Elijah's challenge to Israel was to make that clear decision. A clear decision about God, one way or the other. Are you going to follow him or you're not going to follow him? And to be totally, uncompromisingly committed to that decision. And friends, that is a decision which you and I need to make. Again, if we're not a Christian, we need to actually be confronted with the uh, the reality that this is a T-intersection type of decision. You can't not make a decision about it. You've got to go one way or the other. Uh, if we're a uh, new or a seasoned Christian, then we need to be making this kind of daily decision about which God we're going to follow. Uh, because the temptation is all around us to follow other gods. Let's be clear. Let's be decisive. Let's be committed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Elijah's ministry, that he was clear and that he was bold and that he challenged Ahab and Israel. Uh, we uh, pray also, Lord God, that we would take that challenge ourselves. Uh, help us not to be um, muddle-headed about this particular issue. Um, help us not to be half-hearted. Uh, help us to be clear and decisive. Uh, as we look at Jesus and we consider his resurrection and his claims about himself. Father, we pray that um, we would make a decision for Christ and that we would live out that decision every day of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.